This is Dr. Bob Chisholm in his teaching on 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is session number 26, Blood Vengeance for the Gibeonites, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, and David's Mighty Men, chapter 21, verses 15 and following, and chapter 23, verses 8 and following. In our studies uh, of First uh, and Second Samuel, we have come to the epilogue, uh, which is Second Samuel chapters 21 through 24. This section is not in chronological order. The uh, story of David uh, is suspended uh, at the end of Second Samuel chapter 20. The epilogue uh, consists of material from different points in David's career, and then the story is going to pick up again in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, where we read about uh, the fact that Solomon will succeed David, and then David passes away. Um, As you read through the epilogue, 2 Samuel 21 through 24, it may seem initially that material is just sort of thrown in there at random. There doesn't seem to be a clear-cut structure, but actually there is, and it's what we call a chiastic or concentric or mirror structure. And I'll walk you through the outline, and I think you'll see how this works. Um, The section begins in chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, with an account of Saul's sin and its atonement. And so this initial account recalls a time when Saul committed uh, sin against the Gibeonites with whom the Israelites had made a treaty. Uh, And the Lord punishes Israel for Saul's sins. By this time, David is the king. Uh, And David has to clean up the mess that Saul left. Uh, And so I entitle this section, Saul's Sin and Its Atonement, David as Royal Judge. David is going to be functioning as a royal judge here. He's going to be mediating between the Gibeonites uh, and uh, Israel uh, so that the Lord will restore his favor to Israel, but we will talk about that passage here in a moment. So we could designate that initial story as A in the outline. Then in chapter 21, verses 15 through 22, we have a section which records the mighty deeds of David's men. Uh, David won great victories for Israel during his career, but the epilogue to the book makes it clear that he had a lot of help. Uh, And this is always the case uh, for the Lord's chosen servants. Uh, They need the support of others. Uh, It takes a team to accomplish God's purposes. And so there's a brief account of the mighty deeds of David's men, and we could call this B in the outline. So we've got the initial story where David is going to function as the royal judge and then the mighty deeds of David's men. When we come to 2 Samuel 22, which is a long poem that also appears in the Psalms, in Psalm 18, we have two versions of this one poem that David wrote. It's David's song of thanksgiving, thanking the Lord for uh, sustaining him, delivering him, giving him victory uh, in battle. 2 Samuel 22, it's verses 1 through 51. As I said, it's a long, long song. That could be C. So, A, we've got David as royal judge, B, the mighty deeds of David's men, and C, David's song of thanksgiving. What's going to happen at this point in the epilogue in chapters 23 and uh, and 24 is we're going to go back in reverse. 
we're going to go, we've gone A, B, C. Now we're going to reverse that and go C, B, A. And so at the beginning of chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, we have David's final words, uh, it's called. It's a short poem, but it corresponds to the long poem that's in chapter 22. So we could refer to it as C as well. Then we come to another section that deals with the mighty deeds of David's men in chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. David actually had a group of uh, elite warriors that were called the 30, and they're all named there. Uh, And at first you think, well, we talked about the mighty men earlier. How come this material isn't with that earlier material? That's because the author wants to arrange his material in a concentric fashion. This is a very common structuring device that we see in the Old Testament in, in different places. And so we could call this second section on the mighty deeds of David's men B. Uh, corresponding to the first. And then the epilogue ends with another story. Uh, This time it's a story of David's sin and its atonement. David's sin in numbering the people. And in this case, David mediates between Israel and the Lord, and David functions as a royal priest. And that's what we see in chapter 24. So to quickly review the structure of the epilogue, it begins with Saul's sin and its atonement. David is royal judge. That's A. The mighty deeds of David's men. B. David's song of thanksgiving. C. Then another poem. David's final words. C in the second section of the epilogue. The mighty deeds of David's men again. B. And then David's sin and its atonement, David as royal priest, and that would be our final A section. So hopefully you were able to follow that, and there is a clear-cut arrangement in this section. And as you can see, it is kind of a microcosm of David's career. David had to clean up a mess left by Saul. David had a lot of help from his mighty men in winning great victories, and he talks about his relationship with God in those poems. David also had times when he failed, and that final story in chapter 24 is an example of that. So, with that introduction to the epilogue, let's uh, move into the material itself, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, um, where we're going to read about Saul's sin and its atonement, where David is going to be functioning as the royal judge. But we could entitle this section, Blood Vengeance in Gibeah. And what we're going to see is that sin, in this case Saul's sin, sometimes has devastating consequences, and it did for his family, um, because God is a just God, and his justice must be satisfied. So let's begin with this story. It's not a happy one. Um, Like so many passages in the books of Samuel, Uh, It has its disturbing uh, dimension to it, and it's not a happy story to read. During the reign of David, we're not told when, but sometime after David had become king, there was a famine for three successive years. Uh, This is not good. Uh, This would be understood by the Israelites as something's wrong in our relationship with God. Why is there a famine? Why is God not blessing us? Because they know from the way the covenant is set up, that if Israel is obedient, the Lord will provide what they need. If they are disobedient, then the Lord will bring famine. And so something uh, has happened here to uh, upset the Lord, it would seem. So David sought the face of the Lord. David uh, went before the Lord and 
sought his mercy and tried to get some information uh, about what had happened. You would have thought he would have done this sooner before the famine got to three years, but nevertheless, he finally goes before the Lord, and the Lord answers very clearly. It is an account of Saul and his blood-stained house, interestingly enough. Saul has stained his own house, as it were, his own family. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Uh, We didn't read about this earlier in the books of Samuel. Uh, So this is an indication that lots of things happened that we weren't told about uh, earlier in the story. And this is one of those. He put the Gibeonites to death. And so we have to uh, do a little background uh, work here. Uh, why would that be wrong? The Gibeonites were part of the Canaanite group. Why, why would it be wrong for Saul to try to kill them? Well, you'll recall if you go uh, all the way back into the uh, book of uh, Joshua, chapter 9, uh, the Israelites were invading the land and the people of Gibeon were afraid. They realized they were going to be wiped out and so they came up with a plan. They put on old clothes and took old moldy bread and went to the Israelites and said, we have come from a far country. We've heard about how great you are. We want to make a treaty with you. Um, The Israelites uh, believed this and made a treaty with the Gibeonites. Uh, Treaties uh, in this context are going to be uh, solidified by uh, swearing oaths. And so the Israelites vowed, they made an oath, that they would uh, not harm the Gibeonites Uh, The Gibeonites, in turn, would serve as servants for the Israelites. Uh, These treaties would have curses. Typically, in a treaty, you would say, if I break this treaty, may I be punished by the god or the gods. Uh, And these are called curses. They're threatened judgments for violation of the treaty. So Israel made this treaty with the Gibeonites. Then they discovered that the Gibeonites had had, uh, tricked them. But the treaty was made. And so the Israelites realized we have to keep this treaty. And so the Israelites and the Gibeonites had a working relationship for a long, long time. Saul came along and decided, I'm going to wipe out the Gibeonites. Um, uh, We've already seen Saul failed to wipe out the Amalekites as he should have. uh, But he's quick to try to wipe out the Gibeonites even though they have a treaty with Israel. Well, the Lord is on the Gibeonite side because that treaty was made on oath and the Lord is the protector of the treaty. And so there's a sense in which when Israel makes this treaty and they appeal to the Lord as the guarantor or the protector, uh, the Lord is going to be responsible for protecting the Gibeonites' interests. So we read in 2 Samuel 21:2, the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel but were survivors of the Amorites. Um, This is the background material that we talked about. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. So Saul, apparently, with some kind of nationalistic, pro-Israel, pro-Judah zeal, he decided, we don't want Gibeonites living among us. And so he decided to wipe them out. And he tried to do that, and uh, he, he killed uh, many of them, apparently. So David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? 
we're being punished for what Saul did. We, we don't want that to continue. We, we need to eat. Uh, so what can we do to appease you, to make atonement for Saul's sin, so that you will ask the Lord to bless us? Because you, in many ways, hold our destiny in your hands here. We violated the treaty, and we want to know what we can do um, to get, get back into a proper relationship with you and with the Lord. And the Gibeonites answered, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. Well, what do you want me to do for you? David asked. So they begin by saying what they don't think is fair. David wants to know what they do think is fair. So they answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us, Saul, and plotted against us so that we have been decimated. Saul must have wiped out a lot of these Gibeonites and have no place anywhere in Israel. We are so weak now, we really have no place in, uh, among Israel. Before we were a strong people and now we've been decimated. Let seven of his male descendants. Now I'm sure Saul killed more than seven Gibeonites, but in the Old Testament world and in the Old Testament, seven is often a number that is used to indicate, uh, symbolically, it indicates fullness and completion, perfection. Uh, so they, they choose this highly symbolic number and they say, let seven of his male descendants, sort of representing Saul's blood-stained house, be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord. That's very important. They see this as something that is going to be done before the Lord. So they see this as something that's just. The Lord will see the penalty paid and then will restore his blessing to Israel. So before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, they're going to do this in Saul's hometown, which seems appropriate, um, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. Um, so understand what's happening here. Uh, seven of Saul's descendants are going to be executed for his sins. Uh, whether they were involved in it or not, um, they are going to be executed to pay the price. And so David is in a very difficult situation. He has to choose which seven descendants uh, are going to die. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. David himself had made a covenant with Jonathan and had promised uh, to protect Jonathan's uh, descendants, so he can't touch anyone that's descended from Jonathan. And so Mephibosheth, we've read about him before, the uh, fellow who uh, was dropped when he was a child and was lame, David spares his life. Uh, David has been taking uh, care of him and uh, he spares his life. Uh, but the king took Armoni and another Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter Rizpah, whom had, she had borne to Saul. So Saul had two sons through this concubine Rizpah, and so David takes those two uh, sons together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merav. Remember, Saul had tried to marry Merav off to David. Uh, David uh, didn't go for that. He eventually married Michael. Um, so five sons of Saul's daughter, Merav, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Macolithite. Uh, so five of Saul's grandsons through Merav. Just imagine the pain 
that this must have caused uh, their parents. He handed them over to the Gibeonites. But by the way, don't get mad at David, and don't get mad at the Lord. Uh, This is a matter of justice. Uh, Think of the victims in this case, the Gibeonites. Uh, And uh, justice has to be served, and unfortunately, these uh, sons and grandsons are going to have to pay the price for for Saul's sins. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. March, April, around there. Uh, Rizpah, daughter of Aya, who has lost two sons in this, took sackcloth, which is often associated with mourning, and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. Rizpah's attitude is, I am not going to allow my sons to be devoured by wild animals. They're going to have a proper burial. And I am going to stay out there night and day and keep these scavengers from devouring the corpses of my boys. Uh, Now, the execution took place in maybe in April, May, March, April, May, barley harvest, um, and she protected the corpses until the rains came, uh, signaling that the famine, uh, the drought was over. Uh, We're not certain how long this vigil lasted. Uh, The fall rains don't come until October and November, so she may have been out there for months. On the other hand, um, because there's been a famine, the Lord may have caused it to rain prior to that, uh, which means she wouldn't have been out there for quite as long, but still, she is out there for a uh, lengthy period of time. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, uh, he got to thinking, you know, maybe we need to give Saul and Jonathan a proper burial. Um, and so this is a catalyst for his own thinking about them, and he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Yabesh Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa, you will recall. The citizens of Yabesh Gilead, who liked Saul because he had delivered them uh, one time from Nachash the Ammonite, they went and they took the bodies and brought them back to uh, their town. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. So David feels that Saul and Jonathan need to be buried in their ancestral tomb, and so he goes and gets those bones and brings them back. Uh, Rizpah's actions were the catalyst for this. And then we read at the end of verse 14, and this is how we know that the Lord endorses what happened here uh, as justice, and he's on the side of the Gibeonites. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Uh, And I would assume that means that the seasonal cycle uh, began again uh, with its regularity and all was well. This is a disturbing account because what happens in this story is sons and grandsons pay the penalty for um, a father's or a grandfather's sins 
Uh, and according to the Old Testament law, you are not supposed to punish uh, a child for a parent's sin. The law does not allow Israelite courts to do that. Um, but God is in a different category. Uh, God is the author of life, the creator of life, and he can punish individuals by taking away his blessing of children. Uh, human beings can't do this, but God is the one who gives the blessing in the first place, and he can punish uh, sinners by taking their children away. Uh, and we see examples of this in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Pentateuch, in the law, the Lord warns that sinners, those who hate him, who rebel against him, will see the consequences of their sin uh, in their family to the third or fourth generation. Uh, people sometimes think that that's a transgenerational kind of thing beyond the person's lifetime. But actually, in this culture where uh, men would get married uh, very, very young and begin to have children, you could be a father at 15 or thereabouts, uh, grandfather at 30, uh, you could live to see uh, your, the third and fourth generation. In fact, there's an Aramaic inscription that we have where an individual is dying, a priest, and he says, I saw my offspring all around me to the, I think, fourth generation. Um, so it means throughout your lifetime. Uh, so we have that policy that's stated in the law. Uh, we have examples of this in Numbers when Datan and Abiram and Korah rebel against Moses and the Lord punishes them for their sin, uh, the children are uh, executed along with their sinful parents. The ground opens up and swallows up the children, even the little ones of Datan and Abiram. Korah's sons, we discover, were spared. Uh, I don't know, they were maybe playing over at somebody's uh, house that day, but they were spared. Uh, if you recall uh, Achan, when Achan sinned against the Lord and stole some of the loot, uh, his children were executed along with him. Some people will say, well, they must have been in on it. Uh, well, why were his animals executed? Were they in on it? No, uh, Achan and his property um, was taken away. And the, it's the Lord's prerogative to do that. Uh, we're even seeing that uh, unfold in David's story here. David sinned. He said that uh, the uh, sinner uh, would pay fourfold. Of course, he's the sinner. And he, one by one, is losing sons. Uh, now, they're sort of self-destructing here. But nevertheless, this is God's discipline upon David. And so, uh, as much as uh, it disturbs us, there are times uh, when God deems it appropriate to take away his blessing of children from individuals who have blatantly rebelled against him. Saul had done that in violating um, this treaty with the Gibeonites. Saul had murdered a lot of Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites asked for restitution, and the Lord provided that. And so don't get mad at David. Don't get mad at the Lord. Uh, realize this is what happens when individuals sin against the Lord. Um, there, there's always collateral damage. There are repercussions. And uh, I think some innocent people died in this case um, because of uh, their ancestor Saul's sins. We're now going to make a transition to the next part of chapter 21, which is the section on David's mighty men, uh, verses 15 through 22. And uh, in the concentric structure of the uh, epilogue that we talked about, we're also going to slide over 
and look at the second section on David's Mighty Men in chapter 23. Uh, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. It's very interesting, and you can uh, read about it uh, on your own. But in verse 15 of chapter 21, we see, Once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. We're not told exactly when. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he becomes exhausted. Uh, And then we discover that there is a Philistine warrior, Ish-Bibinov, who's one of the descendants of the Rapha. Uh, It sounds (laughs) kind of scary, and he's got a bronze spearhead that is very, very uh, large, uh, and uh, he has targeted David. Um, His his bronze spearhead probably weighs about seven and a half pounds, and he's targeted David. He's announced, I'm going to kill David. Um, So Abishai, who we have met on and off during the story, he's the one who wanted to kill Saul. Uh, David wouldn't let him. He wanted to kill Shimei twice. David wouldn't let him. But he is a good guy to have around. He is an accomplished warrior. Uh, And he comes to David's rescue. And he strikes that Philistine down and kills him. But David's men on this occasion tell David, you're not going to go out to battle anymore with us um, because we don't want the lamp of Israel to be extinguished. They refer to David in that way. Uh, a lamp is what provides light and, uh, uh, and gives you directions so you won't uh, stumble or fall. And so they see David as the leader of the nation, as their lamp, as it were, the one who guides them and directs them safely. And they don't want to lose him. And so they tell David, you're not going to go out into these hand-to-hand combat situations uh, anymore. So this must have been toward the end um, of his career. There's another battle with the Philistines. And one of David's mighty men, Sibachai, uh, the Hushathite, kills a fellow by the name of Saf, uh, who's one of the descendants of the Rapha as well. Uh, Then in verse 19, uh, in another battle with the Philistines at Gov, there is a warrior by the name of Elchanan, who is the son of Yair the Bethlehemite. Uh, And he kills another large individual um, who is probably the brother of Goliath. Um, The uh, Hebrew text of 2 Samuel 21.19 actually says Elchanan killed Goliath. Uh, And so scholars have puzzled over this, whoa, whoa, I thought David killed Goliath, but here Elkanan kills Goliath. Uh, And so the problem has been solved in different ways. Some will argue that Elkanan is just an alternative name for David. Uh, I don't think that's the case. David is being called David all the way through here. Why would we all of a sudden call him Elkanan with no indication that we're uh, using an alternative name? Uh, Others have argued, well, Goliath may have been a title uh, the Philistines used, and so this is a different Goliath. Um, I don't know. That that seems like to me like we're cutting the knot at that point, not untying it. Um, Others have argued, well, it may have been Elkanan who killed Goliath. David may have killed a giant, but he wasn't called Goliath. And over the course of the time, the name Goliath crept into the story back in 1 Samuel 17 and some other texts where he's named Goliath. I think the simplest solution is to use the Chronicles parallel passage. In the Chronicles parallel passage, it says in 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5 that Elchanan killed Lachmi, the brother of Goliath. 
now, I think that Lachmi is a corruption in the Chronicles passage of Bethlehemite. Um, so I don't think that either of these texts preserves the original reading. I think textual corruption has occurred. Uh, that shouldn't disturb you, by the way, and make you think that the Bible's unreliable. When we affirm inerrancy and inspiration for Scripture, uh, it's usually uh, in conjunction with some kind of a statement about the original manuscripts, the original text. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that in the course of time, as human beings are transmitting these texts, errors can come in. Uh, and so inerrancy doesn't apply to the later manuscript tradition. It applies to the original text. Uh, and so that's important to remember. What we're doing when we're doing uh, textual criticism like this is we're trying to determine what is the original text. Once we determine that, we can then affirm that it's inspired uh, and inerrant. And so that's what we're doing here. We've got a problem. The uh, two texts don't seem to line up, and is there some way that we can figure out what the original text said? I think the original text said that Elkanan killed, and then I think there was a proper name. Uh, I don't think it was Lachmi. Uh, there was a proper name, and then it said the brother of Goliath. Uh, and if you know Hebrew, you realize that Hebrew will sometimes use a little particle to introduce the object of a verb. That particle is et. Um, the Hebrew word for brother is ach, uh, or uh, when it's followed by a name, it would be achi. Uh, in Hebrew script, and remember, in early on, there would be no vowel pointing. It would just be the consonant, consonants. The accusative sign looks like the word for brother. And so I think that contributed to the problem here. I think what happened, uh, a scribe wrote down, uh, the, the text before him was Elkanan killed whatever proper name, et, accusative sign, proper name, the brother of Goliath. And I think what happened, the scribe probably uh, wrote the et, then his eyes skipped down to brother, which looks like et, and so he thought that he had written the, uh, the et, and he just skipped over uh, the name and the word brother, and then ends up with him killing Goliath. I think that's what happened in the Second Samuel twenty-one nineteen tradition. First Chronicles twenty, they're trying to smooth it out. Uh, bottom line, I know this is kind of technical, uh, but I think that what happened, Elchanan is a distinct individual, uh, and he killed an individual uh, who was the brother of Goliath. There was another battle, according to 2 Samuel 21 20, uh, that took place at Gath. And there was a huge man. So there's a family of giants down here in the Gath area. Goliath was one of them. Uh, he's a huge man, and there's an oddity about him. He has six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And just in case you're mathematically challenged, uh, the Hebrew Bible will often do things like this 24 in all. <laughs> Um, and he was also a descendant of the Rapha, and uh, he taunts Israel, and Jonathan, son of Shemiah, David's brother. So this is uh, an individual who is David's nephew. He killed him. Um, so these four were the descendants of the Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. So David had a lot of mighty warriors. David brought down Goliath, but as you can see, uh, he had other warriors around him who were very adept, and they also uh, won great victories uh, on David's behalf and killed giants as well. We're going to skip at this point over to the second section in the concentric outline on David's mighty men. 
2 Samuel 23, verse 8 begins this next section. Uh, and we read about uh, some individuals who were uh, great warriors, and you can read about their, uh, their exploits. Uh, on uh, one occasion, uh, they actually went and uh, got water for David at Bethlehem. They risked their lives. David said, you know, I would love to have a drink of water from the well or the cistern near the gate of Bethlehem back home. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be refreshing right now? Well, he wasn't suggesting that anyone go and try to get that water, but three of his mighty warriors break through the Philistine lines, uh, and they brought back water for David from that well or cistern. And David is so overcome by their bravery and their commitment to him that he uh, pours it out before the Lord as a drink offering. He says, I can't drink this. When I look at this water, I see your blood You risked your lives to do this, and so I'm going to consecrate this water, and I'm going to pour it out before the Lord as a drink offering. So these are the kind of fellows that are uh, uh, surrounding David. Uh, And uh, there's even one one guy, I particularly like him, Benaiah. Uh, You can read about him in 2 Samuel 23, 20. He's a valiant fighter, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, He also went down into a pit uh, or a cistern, uh, empty cistern on a snowy day, and killed the lion. So can you imagine that? Going down into a cistern, it's you and the lion, uh, and it's snowing. And you know when it's snowing, you can slip, and these cisterns were plastered over, and so they could be slippery, uh, but yet uh, he killed, he was able to kill the lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Uh, the, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and Benaiah went against him with a club. Uh, and what he does, he snatches the spear from the Egyptian's hand, and he kills him with his own spear. Uh, and so David had this group of warriors who were called the Three. Um, and they were a particularly elite group. Um, there were others that were associated with them, including Abishai that we've read about before. He's spoken of in here, the brother of Joab. He was the chief over the three, but he was not a member of the three, but he was a chief over them. Uh, and uh, he raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and he became as famous as the three. So Abishai, on occasion... <laughs> is overzealous. Uh, He actually collaborated with his brother Joab to murder Abner. But nevertheless, he's a great warrior. He's a good guy to have around. And that may explain why David uh, just kind of overlooked uh, his sins at times uh, and refused to bring justice against him because he was was a great warrior um, uh, to have uh, covering your back. So there is this uh, elite group of the three Uh, And uh, Abishai uh, is associated with them. But then we also get a long list of names that are called the 30. Um, And if you add up the names, it's a little tricky because at one point it just talks about the sons of Yashane. How many sons? Um, And so it seems as if we have more than 30 names. So is that a problem? No, I don't think so. It's a very superficial problem. It may be that these... Uh, individuals were not among the 30 at the same time. In other words, these are, these are all individuals who at one time or another were part of that group. Wouldn't necessarily imply that they were part of the group at all at one time. 
Um, and it may be that the 30 grew. If you're a football fan uh, from the uh, upper Midwest, you probably root for one of the teams in the Big Ten uh, Conference. Well, how many teams are in the Big Ten Conference? <laughs> uh, more than 10, now that they've uh, brought in some other teams. And so uh, sometimes labels just uh, continue because it's the traditional way to refer to uh, a, a units or an institution, uh, even when the number exceeds that original number. So that, that may be a modern parallel to what we have uh, going on here, but you can read all of their names. Uh, and then it says there were 37 in all. And so they're called the 30, but there's 37 in all. And so there is some discussion, well, is that talking about the list and you've got a little bit of flex because you can make the sons of Yashane how many, however many you want them to be to fill out the amount. But uh, also, if you go back into the uh, section before the list, you can actually uh, come up with seven names there. So maybe when it says 37 in all, it's talking about the 30, who were more than 30, the three, and uh, Abishai and another individual who are associated that, well, with them. So at first... It looks like um, there's some confusion on the numbers, but if you look at the text carefully, you'll see that there are some fairly simple ways to uh, resolve the uh, tensions. So what we see here is uh, David uh, had great support from a lot of great warriors that the Lord raised up. Uh, and so it wasn't just David uh, winning victories. Uh, it was David and his uh, warriors who led the armies of Israel. Uh, and the Lord allowed them to uh, accomplish some great things uh, in defending um, the nation. Uh, we'll move on in our next uh, lesson to David's long poem of thanksgiving in 2 Samuel 22, and we'll also look at the short uh, poem at the beginning of uh, chapter 23 called His Final Words. This is Dr. Bob Chisholm in his teaching on 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is session number 26, Blood Vengeance for the Gibeonites, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, and David's Mighty Men, chapter 21, verses 15 and following, and chapter 23, verses 8 and following. Mm -hmm. 